If you would, turn with me to Mark 14, 1 through 11. Mark 14, 1 through 11 is where we'll be reading this morning in God's Word. Um, as, we, as we look at this text this morning, just kind of a little bit of context. We're in the last week of the life of Jesus, and in this last week... Um, <clears throat> kind of move in and out of, we've been in the, the temple, and he's, he's turned tables, and he's called people out, he's been asked questions, and now everything turns, starting in 14 in the book of Mark, and everything turns quickly toward the cross, and so where we find ourselves in the text, Mark is going to put this, um, you almost feel like it's what we call Silent Wednesday. Um, John is going to put this a little bit earlier, but what we know is that Mary is going to anoint Jesus the last week of his life, and we see the beginning of the betrayal. Um, we've seen it kind of coming, but we, we see this deception of the scribes and the Pharisees and Judas and so this is going to begin in this text today. And so there's these two contrasting things that are found in verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> and the two contrasts are, are basically love and hate. Uh, or we could say it devotion and deception. So kind of around this text, I don't know if you felt that ever in your life. Have you ever felt genuine, unfettered love toward you? in your life, where, where there was an affection and a love and a care. Sometimes like with our children, we can feel that if you've had children or maybe with our parents, there's a season in our life where we just felt this unbelievable love toward us that was almost more than we could handle. And maybe, and this is an easier one for most of us to go to, or maybe deception, where you felt that someone was next to you that deeply loved you and cared for you, but deceived you, and in the end found out that there was actually deep hatred for you. Ever had either of those feelings in your life? Well, in this, what we'll see is, and just so you know, Jesus, if you ever wonder if he can identify with you, Jesus is going to feel adoring love in a way that is extravagant in this passage, and he will feel the, the pain of deception, and of betrayal, all within this text that we find ourselves in this morning. So let's look at the passage. Let's read it together. If you have a Bible, um, you can read with me. There's one under the seat ahead of you, and you also can read with us on the screens. Mark 14, 1 through 11 reads, And there was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask. Now, this same account's in John, and the woman is named Mary in that text. So we can kind of, this woman is Mary. Woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head, where... There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. Love that 
that phrase. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand, before burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So in this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three main kind of ideas in the text of how it moves, and then um, after that, we'll look at three main application points for us to walk away from the passage today. So if you're following with me on the back of your bulletin, um, your worship program or whatever it is that we call that, if you're following with me on that, the first thing that we see is the plot to kill Jesus. The plot to kill Jesus, and we're going to see this in verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11, so it's kind of the bookmarks of the section we're reading this morning. So in this, what we see is the, the plot to kill Jesus, the, the first thing we see is the plot to kill Jesus. The, the plot to kill Jesus. So it says that it was at the Passover, and so the Passover was almost at hand, and so the Passover was, um, for the, the people of Israel, this was when they celebrated the liberation they received from Egypt in the Exodus, and they were taken out of slavery and out of bondage and brought into freedom. It was also coming the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a seven-day memorial after the Passover, to remember that. This will be important in a moment. And so these were kind of the, the two festivals that were at hand, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth, by deception or trickery, and kill him through violence. They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And so what that meant is that we're going to push this thing out, probably where we find ourselves here, they're going to push this out about 10 days They're going to say, we're going to wait until the crowds died down. We're going to wait until an uproar meant like people were going to violently come at us because people like Jesus. They they, they kind of liked his ministry and they liked what he was about. And so they were fearful of what the people were going to do in coming against them. So in verse 10, it says, kind of again in the betrayal, Judas went to the chief priests, one of the 12 disciples, in order to betray him. So this is the disloyalty of Judas to hand over Jesus in betrayal. The chief priests and scribes, they heard it and were glad and said they sought out an opportunity to betray him. And so in this, we see the plot to kill Jesus. And at the end of this, what happens is because of Judas' betrayal, they were wanting to push it out about 10 days and now it's moved up about three days. So in this moment, what happened is they found an inroad into kind of the camp of Jesus through Judas, which had been prophesied would be. And so what we see in the plot to kill Jesus, I believe, is the height of rebellion and wickedness in humanity, the sinful corruption of man's heart. The reality is, is there is an evil that is all around us. One of the Batman movies little thing here. Commissioner Gordon was asked a question about kind of the evil of the Joker. And he said, some things you can't explain. They're just evil. So they're trying to figure out what was his motive and what was going on. And in this text, what we see is some things that just can't be explained. They are just pure evil. See, we struggle with that. And we struggle with evil because there's this other kind of thing that is preached in our world, and that is 
that people are basically good, right? People basically have good hearts. They want to do well. They want to love one another. They want to treat humankind well and one another well, right? We all believe that's why, that's why we don't lock our doors at night, right? And we all believe that because there's certain parts of it. I mean, I don't care where you live or where you go. That's how our world is. There's this truth that there is an evil that lurks in our world that we see all around us. There's an evil that is all around us in North Canton, Ohio. And somehow we have this idea, we want to push that away and kind of disbelieve a core truth of the Bible, and that is that, that, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there's a wickedness deep inside of us that we cannot shake or remove. There is a selfishness and a bent to ourselves that we cannot run from. And there is an evil in us and around us in this world. And this plot to kill Jesus is simply one of the most profound examples of that in all the world. The Son of God, come to redeem humanity, was rebelled against because of his message. And in this, in this, there's this prevailing wickedness of wanting to destroy him and to kill him and to murder him in the form of betrayal. Not only is there kind of this prevailing wickedness in our world, and simply I, I hope for us this morning that we just kind of bookmark this as this is true, and we begin to live in the reality of truth, knowing what is in me and what is in this world. But not only that, but we begin to, to live our lives in such a way that we understand that wickedness can only be fought and evil can only be fought in one way. The evil is not fought through elected officials, although they can help do some things. Evil is not fought through all kinds of mediums that we want to, arguments and fights and struggles. That's not how it's fought. Evil is fought by us as the people of God moving forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world, allowing hearts to be transformed, moving from darkness into light, being people being regenerated and made new so that there might be a goodness inside of them named Jesus Christ. And that we might grow in his ways and his purposes more and more in our lives. And so for us in this room, just so we're clear, if you want to get upset about the evil around you, but don't want to talk about Jesus to your lost neighbors and friends, you probably should just keep your mouth shut because you're not fighting the real battle. The real battle is found on the doorsteps in the squares, in the classrooms, in the living rooms, in the restaurants of our lives, being proclaimers of Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, and letting his good news of the gospel being displayed through us and in us in this world. Oftentimes, we are deceived to fight the wrong battles in this world. What ends up happening is we begin to fight one another. See, there's a way to fight the evil and the wickedness around us, and that is by the Savior living through us and the proclamation of his good news in this world. Amen? All right. So the second thing we see is the anointing of Jesus. The anointing of Jesus. So in Bethany, this is where they went throughout the week. And so in this last week, they came into Jerusalem, and then they'd go to Bethany. They'd come back into Jerusalem, they'd go back to Bethany. And so they find themselves in the house of Simon the leper. Now, we don't know a lot about Simon the leper, but we do know that he was, he was a leper, right? It says it in the text. And he was probably healed by Jesus 
And in this, we see this man who'd been touched by Jesus and then transformed to give back to Jesus. Just a little side note, when you are touched by Jesus, you will give back to Jesus. As this man did, opened his home to to Jesus to feed and to care and to allow him to have rest. So he was touched by Jesus. And then we see this full account. Again, I said this earlier, but John 12 gives us maybe another angle of this account to see the fullness of it. So we see that Mary, the woman, was there, and she, Jesus was reclining at the table, and she had an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, the alabaster flask and the ointment together were, were of great value. It says later in the text that it was at 300 denarii, which was what was one year plus in wages, and that's kind of even to think that's, that's without taxes, right? So they were heavily taxed, and she had 300 plus, and so it would have been years probably of, of finances for her. And so in this, she takes this alabaster flask of ointment, great expense, of pure nard, very expensive oil from the Eastern world, and she broke it. She broke it. It's gone. It ceased to have its value because she saw what she was pouring it on as more valuable. See, at this moment, this great expensive jar that she had with this great expensive oil she said, what, what is most valuable is not what I hold in my hands, but the one who stands before me, Jesus. She broke it and she poured it over him. And in this text we see over his head and the John text we see over his feet. And she wiped feet she, with her hair. And her hair was her glory. This was her humanity was displayed. It was sort of the most respected thing on a woman was her hair. And it defined how she was and her class and her stature and all these things in the Jewish world. And in our world, I'm telling you, I have spent so much time waiting for women's hair to be done in my life. It's not even funny. And so, uh, just saying. So, uh, so don't act like y'all don't care about your hair. You do, okay? And so, um, and so, so this kind of this special thing, which was her hair, she became undignified in this moment. And she became undignified, and she bowed before her Savior, and she wiped his feet with her very own hair to anoint the one she loved with praise, sacrifice, and devotion. And might we become more undignified with our lives, anointing the one we love, laying down all of our glory and all of who we are for all of Jesus to live for him and to love him with our lives. In verse 8, we see that she says she did what she could. And Jesus says, she anointed my body before burial saying, it, it's coming. That my death and my burial, it's coming. And she is preparing Jesus. It was another shadow of his death and burial. So in this, the verse 8 phrase, though, she says, it says, she did what she could. Now, in our lives, we have this thing called ego. I don't know if you've ever noticed it in another human being anywhere at any given time. Ego is this thing that we kind of operate like this. So, so people that have a problem with too high of egos, we call, anybody? Jerks, right? That's it, like, right? That's what we call them, right? And then people that have too low of egos, we say they're probably depressed, right? They're sad. They're too down. So the key in life is you don't want to have a big ego because you're a jerk, 
But if you have a small ego, then that's bad too, because then you're depressed. And so you got to like play the yo-yo thing. And so somewhere you got to find the middle. You can't think too much of yourself and you can't think too little of yourself. And so you play this game. Has anybody ever been caught playing this game in your life? Like, no. Somebody's like, no, man, I'm awesome. Right? So <laughs> I don't play the yo-yo game because I rock. And so so we have these kind of two sides of ego, right? And we see this in the Christian life like this. What, what tends to happen is kind of low, and this isn't always the case, but typically is law. And what law does is we go low and we say, man, I just, I am a dirty, rotten worm. I, I can never obey God enough. I can never do enough. How could he ever love me? Which is true, but we kind of live in this depressed state of the faith. Or we go way up high and we go, man, Jesus Christ died for me on the cross. I can do whatever I want, man. I'm free. Let, let, and we kind of mess up the words of Paul and we say, let grace abound and sin abound. Come on. I don't care what I do. I can do whatever I want. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody does wrong. You know, how are we, how are are any of us ever going to be perfect? I'm just going to live my life and do what I want. And so we kind of live in this license or law. Now, some people that live in law do it all right and they kind of get big egos in that, but we can live in this world. Let me tell you, I think Mary, she hit a, she hit another place. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, scriptures say, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, now listen, here it is, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, what Jesus does and what Mary experiences is Mary didn't play the ego game. Because this moment wasn't about her. It wasn't about her being depressed or about her being happy or the best. It wasn't about license and it wasn't about law. It was about love. Mary had come to a place where life wasn't about her. It wasn't about her happiness or her sadness or her goodness or her badness. She just saw the one she loved and she ran after him and she sacrificed all she had for the one she loved. And what Jesus really displays, what the scriptures display, is there's this way out of the ego game of our lives. And the way you get out of the ego game of your life is you fall in love and you die. And Paul Paul says, basically, you need to pop the balloon of ego, high or low, and get over that game and die to yourself, crucify yourself, and now move into a new place. And that new place is that I love. And that love now motivates us to live the lives we live for Jesus to love the one who first loved us. We break out of the, 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 the world of license and law, although because I love him, I want to obey him. Because I love him, I want to fulfill his purposes. Because I love him, I want to be free. Because I love him, I do all these things, but my love for him is the driving force behind my life. So the anointing of Jesus was really Mary in this great act of worship, just saying, I love you and I anoint you with the most valuable thing I have because I love you. The third thing we see in the text, kind of motion of it, is the defense of Mary. The defense of Mary. Some said to themselves indignantly, this is grieving anger, why did she waste the ointment? It could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, again, years plus of wages, given to the poor, to the destitute, 
and they scolded her. Now, this is, this is kind of this interesting phrase. It was indignant, and they scolded her. The word scolded literally means snorting with anger. And so is this moment, I don't know if you've ever been to like a school board meeting here, this is Teacher's Day. And so have you ever been to a school board meeting and there's that one person that's super ticked off and they're like, oh, I can't believe you do this. They're yelling. Or if you've maybe been in a church council meeting or something like that. Like, and there's this person that's so mad and they just can't understand why we're doing this. And this is this kind of attitude in the room is everything turned. But what's even more crazy about this in John, we see that Judas is the one who brings it up first. And he says, why would she do that? Well, that's a great question, Judas, because you don't get it. You don't get it at all. See, for me, if I'm in that room and I'm Jesus, which I am not, I'll be clear, I, this is that moment where you're like, are you kidding me, Judas? Like, you're about to betray me. And it's like, that's where you grab Judas and like you punch him in the face, right? Like, that's what I'm saying. That, that's what I want to do in this moment because this is this ultimate betrayal. Jesus knows that he's going to betray him. Now he comes after one who is honored and anointed and loved and cared for Jesus. Now, don't, obviously Jesus didn't punch him, and hopefully you don't think less of me for wanting to punch Judas, but that's, what I, that's how I feel. Okay, so. And so in this, what does Jesus say? This is these great words. Jesus says, leave her alone. Now, I wish I just could have been in that room to see that moment where Jesus took defense of this wonderful woman who will be memorialized of her, of the object of her love, and the one she loved more than anything. In this moment, he said, leave her alone. So if you ever, people ever say, Jesus didn't really care much for women, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's adhering to his teachings. There was this moment, this woman, who probably shouldn't even have been in the room, and Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus then says, you, have, you always have the poor with you. And again, he's not, minimizing the work of, he's not minimizing the work to the poor. He says, you can, you can do things for them whenever you can do good for them. But the point here is Jesus is the priority. He was a priority for her. And Jesus says that I am the priority, and this is important because our priority must always be Jesus, never our work for him as a priority. And where, the, where Judas and the others coming against, they were putting the priority on the work rather than the object of our affection. And when we get it right that Jesus is the priority, I believe that we will do more good work for Jesus when he is the priority, and then his work flows out of him, out of our love for him and our desire to honor him with our lives. So Jesus, he, Jesus, again, doesn't, doesn't minimize the works of the poor, but says, I am the priority. Because he says, you will not have me much longer with you. And then he says again, she has done what she could. She will be known through the ages of her act of extravagant love for me. See, memorials, and this is this kind of memorialization of her. Memorials typically are all about remembering our greatness. So the Hall of Fame, there'll be all these new inductees this year. And so what we'll do is we'll memorialize the greatness of their football acumen and their sort of good character, right? For the most part, just if you pay attention to football lately. And so, so in this, 
we will, they'll be memorialized in some way. But what's interesting about her memory, see, she will be remembered for the object of her love. And that's what made her great. I don't know if you hear that. She will be remembered for the object of her love. And I believe as Christians, our greatest desire might be that we won't be remembered for our greatness, but we will be remembered for the object of the one in which we love most with our lives. We won't be remembered for the things we did here or there, but we will be remembered for the one in whom we put our faith in and trusted in. Might we erect a memorial to the object of our love with our lives? So in this, we see this kind of defense of Mary. Now, I don't know if you've ever been defended in life. When I was in kindergarten, I remember way back, we had moved to a new school district. And then moving into the new school district, it was this, you know, big new world. I had 20 kids in my class. I grew up in a really small community. And so I had 20 kids in my class, and you kind of knew everybody that was everywhere, but we were new, so we didn't know everybody. And so my three older brothers had gotten on a bus after school, and I went to get on the bus. And there was uh, the bus driver. Her name was Roberta. And you should kind of sneer when you hear that name. That would help the effect of who she was. I saw her one time push a kid off a bus. I saw her chase a kid with a broom. Like, I mean, it was, there was a lot of Roberta stories. There still is. It's kind of like a Christmas tradition to tell Roberta stories at home. So, Roberta, I go to walk on the bus. I'm a kindergartner. My older brothers are all already walking on the bus. And she says, don't you get on this bus. You got kicked off. And she started, like, reaming me out. And I was scared to death. And I don't cry much, but that was, like, the first time in my life, maybe, I ever, I just, like, started crying right there. I remember, like, crying. Roberta's yelling at me. My big brother, Mark, walked from the back of the bus, and he grabbed me. He goes, leave him alone. He's my little brother. He's with me. And he walked back and we sat down on the bus. And I remember, I remember this moment of my big brother, Mark, standing up for me and saying, you will not mistreat my brother. And this picture of Jesus isn't just in this text. It's one, this great way in which Mary has honored the Savior of the world. But it's also this great picture of our Savior and how he defends us and how he cares for us. And I don't know what image you have of Jesus in your mind, but I hope this one is burnt in your mind that when those that come against you for your faith, for your position, for honoring him, for the judgment that people have because you're displaying an act of love and care for Jesus and they don't think that you're doing it appropriately like this text, just know that your Savior comes down, he wraps his arms around you, and he says, I love you, I am for you, and in, in, in time, right, I'm going to display this to you fully. Jesus is one who comes to our defense, and one day will forever, when we stand before the great judgment, because of his defense, he will say, leave him alone, he is with me, and we will enter into paradise forever, because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So in this moment, what, what we... Jesus stands up for us. What we do even seemingly foolish, he is there for us. So application, what do we do in light of this? What is God asking us to do? And I remember years ago, I was sitting in a service and a preacher was up and he said, whatever God is saying to you to do today, will you commit to me right now that you will do whatever he says? I remember sitting in the front row and I said, yes, I'm in really not knowing the consequences of what was about to happen. And then 
he began to preach and go through a saying, and immediately in my soul, two things that I needed to do came to my mind. And those things were of great cost. And for time, I'm not going to go into the depths of those things. But I did those two things that were very challenging, and they probably brought me, brought me in that moment, in that season of my life, the greatest peace and the greatest closeness that I'd experienced in a long time with my father because I had been withholding. I had not been moving forward. I hadn't repented. I hadn't obeyed him in my life in those two areas. So I'd say to you today, in the next few moments, would you commit to me to do whatever God is asking you to do? And I don't know what that is for each of you. It may be very different. But would you commit to me that today, when you leave here, you're going to do whatever God speaks into you today? For application, there's two things. That we do what we can to extravagantly love Jesus. That we do what we can to extravagantly love Jesus. Say to you right now, if you're in a place in your seat, and, and you're thinking, I'm already doing that. It scares me a little bit for you. <laughs> because I think all of us, wherever we find ourselves, have some, some things that we can do to increasingly love Jesus in our lives. See, in this, what we know is that whatever we do, our motives are known. What we see in Mary is she had very pure motives, that she simply loved Jesus also believed she was led by the Spirit. This was a supernatural moment in time where she was anointing Jesus for burial. But we also see in this that she was not guided by practicality. She laid aside practicality and simply obeyed the Father. And she gave excessively out of her love for us do what we can to extravagantly love Jesus. What is it that God wants you to do? What is it that in your heart you desire to do to show your extravagant love of Jesus? I'll be honest, some of you might think, well, he's going to talk about money, or maybe that's the first thing you talk about. I don't think that's the first thing. I think maybe where you live, where you work, where you play, in the everyday places of your life, what is he asking you to do? to display your love of him in an extravagant way in your life? What is he asking you to move forward in in your marriage, and your family? I think the greatest places that we display our love of God is through our interactions with people. But not only that, it is giving. Giving for her in this, she gave in a costly way. Her. Maybe for you this morning, God is saying that I want you to give excessively in a way that you have it. And that might be different for each and every person in this room. But do what we can to display our love of him. To give, to love, to go, to share, to act, and to ask. Do what we can to extravagantly love Jesus. The second, never see worshiping Jesus as a waste. Never see worshiping Jesus as a waste. For her, what we see in the text is her life was abandoned for Jesus. Her life was all in for Jesus, giving that of which was most valuable to her. From her, 
Her heart, her lips expressed her love of him. From her hands, her head, her hands expressed her love of him. Might our lives, from our heart to our lips, express the love of Jesus that we don't keep it in, but it comes out. That our our love of Jesus moves from something that we intellectually believe, which is important to intellectually believe and to dive into that, but it moves out into our hands, into our actions, in our lives, toward others, toward the church, toward the greater work of God in this world. That our lives, we never see worshiping Jesus as a waste. See, how great and glorious and wondrous and worthy is our Savior. See, Jesus, he came, and he lived a perfect and sinless life, And he died a death on a cross that was yours and mine. He took a penalty and a shame that was my penalty and it was my shame to bear. And he, and it was laid upon him. He was crucified, he died. His blood was poured out to cover our sins. He was buried and he rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave, buying a way in which now we can be in right relationship to God and one day be with him at peace forever. See, the work is done. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the high priest. There is no other work to be done. He accomplished everything we need in life and death for us. And now our reciprocation is, Jesus, I am yours, and I want to do whatever I can to extravagantly love you. And I want to never see worshiping you as a waste because you are worthy of all of my life and all of my worship and all of my praise. So again, I just say, what is Jesus asking of you today? What is Jesus asking of you today to do in a response to your extravagant love for him? Romans 12 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Might we give all of ourselves as living sacrifices to him So again, what is Jesus asking of you today to do in worship of him? Maybe the second question is, what is holding you back? That's not for this preacher, this man to say from the stage, I don't know for you. I only know the things that hold me back, and I must deal with those in my own life as you must deal with those. So what do we do? We let it go and we move forward in repentance and faith. So this morning, some things that he may be asking is of you is to repent of your judgment. Maybe there's times where you've looked at a sacrifice that someone else has made, just like the men in that room, and you said, what a waste. Why would this church do it like that? Why would these people do it like that? How dare us judge what others do when we do not know the motive of their hearts? Maybe. Maybe it seems very foolish to us, but they were just simply saying, Jesus, I love you, and this is what I want to do for you. I'm not talking about error. I'm not talking about any of that, but oftentimes we judge things in which we should not judge, and maybe for us, some in the room, we need to repent of that. Repent of your logic. 
Maybe you've lived in such a logical grid of your life that you've never acted in a supernatural way toward Jesus because simply your logic will not allow it. Repent of your calculation and maybe this morning commit to obedience. Commit to knowing him, his word, his ways deeper and deeper in your own life. Commit to expressing from your lips and from your hands, from your heart and your head, your love of Jesus and your love for, so that your love for him might be seen in our world. See, wisdom has its place, but never over obedience and never over worship. Might we be people, as we saw in this text today, might be, we be people that extravagantly show a love of Jesus with our lives. And whatever God has said to you to do today, I hope, pray, that each of us will have the strength to obey him so that we might continue to move forward honoring him, loving him, and cherishing him because he is worthy of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your love and your kindness and your care. Jesus, we thank you that you came and that you died the sacrificial death on the cross that was ours. And because of what you have done for us, Lord, you have given us new life. And in that, Lord, we recognize that all that we have is due you. Would you help us this morning to abandon our lives for your sake and your purposes? Or that you would help us to walk in wisdom and discernment. You'd also help us to walk in obedience. And even if, Lord, we will become undignified in it, that you would help us to obey you. Jesus, there is nothing more valuable than you. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to respond to whatever you've said. love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand, we'll worship. These altars are open for you to come and kneel and pray. Maybe he said something to you. Maybe this morning a way for you to nail it down is just simply to come and kneel at these altars and commit whatever he said to you that he's asking of you to do today. But might we feel freedom in this room to move and respond before we leave.